Hello, good evening and welcome. We have come, finally, to the last of our episodes focusing on the output of Japan's most famous film studio and, for me at least, the greatest feature animation production company of all time, Studio Ghibli. Our first two Studio Ghibli episodes covered the directorial canon of the company's human figurehead, co-founder and legendary storyteller Miyazaki Hayao, and in our third episode we brought our attention to bear on the work of his longtime collaborator and business partner Takahato Isao, Ghibli's other co-founder. In this episode we are going to be talking about the work of the other guys, the less celebrated directors who together have created seven Studio Ghibli features not held by either Miyazaki or Takahata. These are films that are typically lesser known and certainly have been directed by less star-studied names, but we hope to be able to enlighten you to any qualities they may have and to guide you to the titles that you should put on your watch list. So, enough of that preamble. To the Crystal Dome! <laughs> or, well, ocean waves, really, I guess. <laughs> Before we begin, Scott, is there anything else you'd like to add? Hi, I'm Scott Morris. <laughs> oh, yes, introductions, I suppose that may be <laughs> So, yes, yes um, I'm Drew and he's Scott. Uh, I, uh, yeah, nothing in particular to add, we'll, we'll get to it as we go through it. I think, I was trying to think when doing the, the uh, episode art for this, what's a polite way of saying other dudes um, <laughs> for this? It's a, it does make it sound a little bit like an afterthought, uh, but th- there are a number of pretty good films in here. Some I'd say that argue that the rival is anything that Miyazaki's done. So yes, let's uh, crack on into it and see where we get to. So we're beginning with Ocean Waves, which is in fact a TV movie. But even as short as it is, we're including this in the podcast as it is feature length. It was first broadcast in 1993 on Nippon Television Network, and it remained relatively obscure for a long time but recently received a Blu-ray release as well as a limited theatrical run in the USA. It is perhaps most notable for being the first Studio Ghibli film not directed by either Takahata or Miyazaki. Based on a novel by Humuro Saeko, Mochizuko Tomomi's film began as a plan by the studio to allow junior staff to make a less expensive film. Didn't work. Yes, a plan that incidentally didn't work out as Ocean Waves ended up both late and over budget. (laughs) Well played then. While waiting at a train station, a young man called Taku sees a familiar woman on the opposite platform, and he begins to recall, in flashback, the moment when he first saw her, and their subsequent time together in high school. The girl, Rikako, had recently moved to Taku's provincial city from Tokyo, and she struggles to fit in, being seen as aloof and different by the other girls at the school, something which Rikako does little to help acting as she does both different and aloof. (laughs) Both Taku and his best friend Yutika are smitten by Rikako and both attempt to cultivate a relationship with her, something that, inevitably, will lead to falling out. It seems at first, though, that Rikako's interest in the boys is simply mercenary and financial, though it transpires that she is deeply unhappy and upset by her parents' divorce. Rikako has been tapping the boys for money so that she can return to Tokyo and stay with her father a trip that she makes with Taku and where she has revelations about the story she's been telling herself. That trip also turns out to be the foundation of a relationship that will define Taku's life. While simpler, and certainly more innocent, Ocean Waves shares a tone with works like, well, particularly I was thinking of Murakami Haruki's Norwegian Wood, though fortunately it's nothing like as turgid as Tran An Hong's 2010 film adaptation of that novel was. Uh, I remember neither us being particularly fond of that, Scott. We talked about it in our previous incarnation. Norwegian wouldn't. <laughs> Badum. 
In terms of other Studio Ghibli works though, the most obvious comparison, thanks to its coming-of-age slice-of-life combination, is Takahata Isao's Only Yesterday, a film to which it also bears a stylistic resemblance. While lacking that je ne sais quoi that elevates Takahata's similarly ordinary story, Beyond any hard-to-pinpoint qualities that may simply be due to a sufficiency of experience rather than a deficiency of talent, and though I am not nearly as enamoured of Only Yesterday as Scott, for instance, is, that film is perhaps the best example to examine and explain why Ocean Waves doesn't work. Only Yesterday also looks back to a formative period of youth, and, while guilty of overindulging nostalgia, it is forward-looking, and its two time periods are separated by a substantial distance in which life is past, an emotionally mature, if uncertain, adult remembering the time when she was a preteen still learning about the world. Ocean Waves, on the other hand, is rather navel-gazy, and undermines the perspective of the seemingly more worldly and sensible older Taku reflecting on his time as an emotionally asinine, impulsive teenager by having the formative events occur only a year or two earlier. It's a slight piece for sure, and Ocean Waves is, undoubtedly, Studio Ghibli's most dispensable work. But for that, I would say it merits viewing at least once, if only for the sake of completion and nothing else. Yeah, I don't think I'd recommend this as anything more than a completionist fancy. I only watched this film for the first time about, I guess, three months ago now, uh, when I thought we'd be doing this a little bit sooner, and uh, in that time, I had completely forgotten everything about it, (laughs) apart from the fact that I didn't like it. So, uh, because I'm a professional, I watched this last night at one o'clock in the morning, uh, just to remember why I didn't like it. And it turns out it's because the the central characters really aren't particularly engaging or engendering any sort of sympathy. You know, Rikako, as you mentioned, is just quite annoying. And by the time it gets to the point where you should, by rights, start feeling sympathetic towards her, you know, that ship had sailed and I didn't really care about her at all. So that makes everything to do with the relationship, uh, the love triangle in the centre of it really, really hard to care about. And so I didn't care about it, and that's why you will forget this film within about a week of watching it. <laughs> yes, the problem is, I think, that the film is every bit as shallow and emotionally simple, perhaps, um, as most teenagers are. Yeah. <laughs> while, while you're a teenager, you don't believe that that's the case, and you think that everything you're feeling is the deepest and strongest anybody's ever felt, but, yeah. but it's not. Um, which you you learn as you grow up, and the film feels rather like, it does feel like a teenage film in many ways. Yeah, um, and perhaps that's the audience for it, and perhaps that's uh, if shown to audiences of that age, they may get more from it. But yeah, from my crotchety old man viewpoint, no, this this is just a something that's been done better before by the same studio. So there's not really much yes. point going for this. Um, it's it doesn't look bad, but it does look noticeably worse than other Studio Ghibli films. Um, you can see that it's made to a budget because yeah. hand-drawn animation is time-intensive and time is money. Time is expensive. It does look like a like a simpler version of Only Yesterday. Yes. It does have that sort of feel, but you can see I that... I mean, we're not talking like Pokemon levels of animation. No, here. certainly not. Good, no. But it is a couple of everything else that uh, she does put out to this point. Well, it's an interesting piece and interesting that the, what the studio were trying to do <laughs> in as much as they, they failed to. But yes, it's very much a lesser work. You say, Scott, too, about that emotional maturity level or lack thereof maybe fits the the target audience. But we've um, we've mentioned a couple of times in Fudson Film, too, though, 
other films that probably to the same marketed to the same sort of age range and do a considerably better job your name for instance from yeah two years ago now i think there's a much 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 better job of that sort of thing so i just think yeah, it's absolutely. a it's a lesser work in in all ways and it's good to see that it finally got a blu-ray release so i mean I, for our fans of studio ghibli i think it's worth watching just to see that you know they can make missteps too but also interesting to see what the thinking was behind some other output yeah yeah that's true it's it's not a disastrous film but it's easily the worst uh of their output and you know take that for what it's worth i mean the worst studio ghibli film is still better than a lot of other yes exactly best efforts but still uh yeah it's it is the minorest of the works that what they have done yes worst is, it's very much a relative term but one other thing before we move on though just i wonder if you can explain to me i, I assume it's a metaphor but I'm not sure. Unless I miss something. You've watched it twice now. If I, I've only watched it once, Scott. But why is it called Ocean Waves? Because there, there's like one scene where you see the ocean and it may not even be the ocean. It could easily be just a lake or something. And it doesn't yeah. seem to have any relevance at all. I'm not sure. But I think when I watched it this time, the initial subtitle didn't say Ocean Waves. It was something like Down by the Shore or something like that, which... Again, doesn't really make a lot of sense apart from the one scene when they're walking there. But yes, I, I don't see any particular relevance to the, any of the thematic content in it at all. No, and it's nothing to do with the English um, translation of it because at some point in English it was called "I Can Hear the Sea," and that in Spanish and Italian and Catalan and French it's called "I Can Hear the Sea" or "I Can Hear the Ocean." So mm. it is at least a consistently translated title but just, i'm not quite sure what no. that title was meant to mean i mean maybe there's a deleted scene where they're holding a seashell up to their ears <laughs> or something like that i don't know but no no yeah. no explanation for it yeah because uh a name like that suggests some sort of perhaps i don't know wanderlust or longing for travel or things like that but the film contains none of that so let's find the, the name a bit of a curiosity but i honestly i i don't care enough about the rest of the film to want to explore yes. that too much further <laughs> Yes, that may actually be the most interesting point about the film that you brought it up. So, <laughs> yes, I suppose that tells uh, tells you all you need to know. Really, <laughs> the biggest emotional attachment we've had to this film is wondering why it's called what it's called. <laughs> so, we will move on to something fortunately considerably more substantial, and that's Whisper of the Heart. Take it away, Mister Morris. Yes. Yoshifumi Kondo's Whisper of the Heart continues the theme of rather more grounded stories, as for a while at least it seems like the main struggle in this film might be 14-year-old Shizuku Tsukushima's attempt to bend John Denver's take-me-home country roads to her adapted lyrical will. A studious child, she's spent the bulk of her evenings checking out a procession of books on the library, and she notices that many of the library record cards, Ask Your Parents, also <laughs> bear the name Seiji Amasawa. Uh, she idly wonders who this could be, and hopes that it's not this dumb boy who keeps saying annoying smart-ass things to her. You may be able to see where this is going. Shizuku has a romantic streak, and so can't resist following home a strange cat who'd been riding the train along with her, uh, leading her to an antique shop of kindly old Shiro Nishi, home to a statuette of a cat named the Baron, more on whom later. Uh, Nishi also turns out to be the grandfather of Seiji, and the two youngsters soon become friends, bonding over music. Sage's passion lies with making violins, which leads to a bump in their path to a relationship when he decides he must try apprenticing himself to a violin maker in Italy. While he's off testing his talents, Shizuku decides to 
tests her passion for writing, uh, making the Baron a protagonist looking for his lost love in a fantasy setting, arguably more common to the rest of the studio's output. Uh, her dedication to this sees her grades suffer, but in an uncharacteristically reasonable and relatable scene, her parents, while concerned, trust in her instincts and don't ban her from writing or anything overly melodramatic like that. Eventually, she passes her self-inflicted trial, and Nishi's approval of the first draft seems to back up her talents. She returns to devoting her attention to her schoolwork, and before long sages back to deliver a happy ending that, if I'm honest, seems a shade too rushed and represents just about the only niggle I have with the film. Now, Studio Ghibli has no shortage of likeable, determined female protagonists, and Shizuku's up there with the best of them. Uh, all the more remarkable, given that she has no supernatural powers or is thrust into any fantastical settings apart from the one that she's writing herself. There are no magical pigs of any description in this film. (laughs) No. (coughs) Most the pity. (laughs) Uh, A charming and very human character, and the self-realisation of Suzuku and, to a lesser extent, Seiji, makes for a really pleasant coming-of-age story. Now, of course, on a technical level, it's got the polish you'd expect from the studio, passing the high bars of animation and score that's table stakes for Ghibli, but leagues ahead of their competitors, then and now. There's not all that much in the way of drama here, to be sure, but as a relationship and character study, it's very good indeed. Now, it's a shame when anyone dies before their time, of course, but in particular it's a shame when someone like Yoshifumi Kondo, who, by mind, had just proven that he was a true peer of Miyazaki and Takahata, dies at only 47. Small consolation, but as a legacy... Whisper of the Heart is a better film than most directors could dream of. Highly recommended. Yes, it's a it's a lovely thing. It does, in some ways, I think, share some traits, perhaps certainly themes, with Ocean Waves, mm. in that there is something of an emotional immaturity to the characters, and yeah. and the way that the film ends with them together, it's like, yeah, that's they're saying they're going to spend their life together. You're fourteen, fifteen years old. It's unlikely to last and you'll learn that and and it's okay but it's kind of hopeful and it's less it is less emotionally mature than ocean waves is and it is i think the film in this case the film is more mature than the characters are the characters are meant to be yeah but at the same time it's still even if if their romance doesn't last it is the friendship might and the friendship certainly rings true and it's just it's too young people sort of beginning to explore relationships, explore themselves more importantly. It's a really a journey of self-discovery for yeah. Shizuku. And it's just a it's just a very rewarding film. Yes, it's not a hugely dramatic film or anything. And I think a lot of Studio Ghibli's best films actually are relatively low-key. Yes. But it is it's just a nice film. It's that always I think I've used this phrase before, but that always sounds like you're damning some of those faint praise to say things, yeah. something's nice, but no, nice things are nice. The sort of things that make the world more bearable, that things are nice, and not everything can be magnificent. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of films we're talking, this episode I think in particular, where really when you reduce the plot to a couple of uh, sentences or paragraphs, it doesn't really sound like much is going on at all, but yes. it's all sort of in between those lines is where the actual uh, joy can be found, and this is definitely the case here. Yeah, narratively, it's not an awful lot going on to it, but I, th- I think it really delivers a, a really, really enjoyable film. And yes, I like this quite film. Quite heartwarming, yeah. One thing that the best of Studio Ghibli, again, is really good, it's just very simple character study and very small movements too, mm-hmm. which a lot of animation, and possibly because it's time-consuming and difficult, but also just perhaps it wouldn't occur to people to put in, that it's actually a, it's a particularly notable example in 
when Marnie was there, I think, which we'll come to later. But just uh, food's a really big thing in Studio Ghibli, and having eating scenes uh, is really, really common. And you get that in live action all the time because having a meal together is just such a part of most people's mm. lives. Yeah. But you don't see it a lot in animation, whereas Studio Ghibli seemed to really focus it. But then, even then, beyond just the sort of part of everyday life thing that the meal is, they will have subtle things. And the thing I mentioned in when Marnie was there too is like they'll have things like a character realizing that they're speaking with food in their mouth and will put a hand in front of their mouth to cover it. Yeah. <laughs> that, and it's that sort of attention to detail that sets Studio Ghibli apart from pretty much anyone else and whisper of the heart is another film that has that sort of subtlety about it too and it's full of just beautiful quiet in a dramatic sense quiet moments like the bit when the grandfather's musical friends start playing Mm. the instruments and stuff and there's, there's so many little observations about how people move in the real world they're in scenes like that and it's just it just makes everything such a nice place to be. So there's no mm-hmm. great drama in this film, but it's just full of of real people. Yes, they're, they're cartoons in terms of how they're drawn, but they're real people and they feel realistic in a way that even live-action films can't always do. Yeah. Yes, it's it's just a nice film, and I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would guess that would bring us to a, a sort of sequel with The Cat Returns. Yes, um... Unlike, for instance, The House of Mouse, Studio Ghibli don't do sequels. Except that is one time only. Sort of. The film that earned a sequel, though for reasons I'll get to momentarily, spin-off is perhaps the more apt term, was perhaps surprisingly Whisper of the Heart. Though Whisper of the Heart was both a critical and commercial success, becoming the most successful domestic film at the Japanese box office that year. So why not that one? What I imagine was definitely a surprise, however, was that the follow-up focused on the cats, particularly the little statue one in the top hat, Barrett, Barrett Humbert von Gekimgen. The short fantasy sections of Whisper that featured the Baron were amongst its most popular sequences, but still, seems yeah. a pretty left-field choice. <laughs> As Scott mentioned when we were talking about Whisper of the Heart, Kondo Yoshifumi, the director of Whisper of the Heart, sadly died three years after the release of that film. At the age of only 47, his premature death, caused by an aortic aneurysm allegedly due to exhaustion and excess work, has been cited as the principal reason for Miyazaki Hayao's first retirement in 1998. In his place for the sequel was Marita Hideyuki, an animator on Akira, Perfect Blue and Studio Ghibli's own Kiki's Delivery Service with The Cat Returns being his directorial debut. Originally a commission for a 20-minute short for a theme park, when the park cancelled the project, Miyazaki Hayao gave what had already been created to Marita, and it eventually grew into a full-length feature. Teenage schoolgirl Haru saves a cat from being run over by a truck one day, which, in a variety of ways she could not even have begun to anticipate, has a profound impact on her life and her immediate future. And why? Because the cat she saved was a prince among cats. Oh, that, that's not a comment on his demeanour and general character. Though he's a pretty spiffing chap, all things considered. No, I mean an actual prince. You know, father is the king, going to inherit the kingdom, that sort of thing. 
This Haru discovers when, the following day, she begins to receive numerous gifts of gratitude from the Cat King and his subjects, though cats not being much for abstract thought are gifts that are considerably more feline than human orientated. Mice. They're mostly mice. (laughs) Unsettled enough by this, not to mention the fact that she's had a non-zero number of conversations with talking cats by this point, her world gets flipped turned upside down when the Cat King himself informs her that he has decreed that she should marry his son the Prince. 2002 marking the moment when Studio Ghibli unexpectedly began to explore bestiality. In a state of despair, a magical voice in the sky, because why not, advises her to seek out a fat white cat, Muta, also returning from Whisper of the Heart, who will lead her to the cat business office. This she does, and at the cat business office she meets the Baron, who pledges that he, and a considerably more reluctant Muta, will aid her. Before they have much of a chance to begin, though, a horde of cats abducts Haru and carries her off to the cat kingdom to prepare her for her wedding. Haru cuts a pretty forlorn figure, but Marita and writer Yoshida Reiko at least neatly sidestep the thorny issue of cat-on-human relations by having Haru transform into a cat soon after her arrival in the cat's domain. Phew. <laughs> Alas for Haru that if she is not returned to human form by sunrise, she'll be a cat forever. Fortunately, the Baron appears to swash some buckles, and he and Muta fight the King's forces as they attempt to rescue Haru. In terms of story, The Cat Returns is very much one of Studio Ghibli's lesser works, and certainly it lacks the scale or ambition of Spirited Away, which it followed into cinemas a year later. But it is one of their quirkier films, and is, by quite some margin, their funniest. For that reason, it is actually one of my favourites, and one I'd put quite high up any list of recommendations. It's so damn fun. However, I remember you, Scott, being quite negative about this film in the past, and also recently when you and Craig were talking about it. So I expect this is the point where you tell me that I'm wrong? Eh, I certainly wouldn't put it anywhere near the top, but um, I was a bit warmer to it this time. My recollections of this were based on seeing it in the cinema when it came out here 15 years ago, I guess. So, you know, they were a bit vague. But I remember being somewhat nonplussed by it. I didn't, I didn't hate it. I think Craig actually might have been more negative on it than I was at the time. I just thought it was all right. Bit of a, a disappointment at the time. And, uh, yeah, didn't hadn't really given it much thought in intervening a uh, decade and a half, to be honest with you. Uh, watched it again the other day there. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it well enough, actually. Didn't, certainly a lot more than the first time. And I think it's probably because I watched the uh, Japanese uh, language version this time around. The version I saw in the cinema was dubbed, and the dub is awful. Eng- the English dub I genuinely did not like in the slightest. I thought it was it was ridiculous and really badly done. Yeah, not a fan of that at all. And I think that might have been where a lot of my uh, a lot of my complaints stem from. I just don't think it is a very good dub at all. I, I watched it through in Japanese. And I thought, well, that was quite good. I wonder why I didn't like it back at the time. Then I went back and sort of dropped, just switched the language at some random points in the middle of it and went, oh, oh yes, I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that, to be honest, was my only complaint. I didn't like that dub. And I don't like many of the dubs they've done, to be honest. Uh, the Disney-backed English language dubs are sort of, all seem to suffer a little bit from having celebrity casting in it when they should really just get better voice actors in to do it. Which is something that, and it's strange because it is part of Disney, but as a general rule, Pixar do. They don't do stunt casting as much. They tend to go more for what's an actual good voice, whereas yeah. 
those Disney backed Studio Ghibli dubs do seem to go for more famous people. I mean, why else would you pick Christian Bale or Liam Neeson? Mm-hmm. But yeah, the film itself is an entertaining enough romp. I, I, I don't think you'd class it as anything other than a, a minor work for Ghibli. It certainly went well into the bottom half of their output. But again, as I mentioned earlier, that makes it substantially better than most other films. Yes, it's 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 okay. I don't I don't mind it this time round. It's it's a perfectly entertaining little romp. But yes, I I don't hold any great regard for it. I didn't find myself thinking it was all that funny. It's it's okay, <laughs> but I was entertained by it. But I don't remember at any point laughing uh, throughout. Certainly, if it, if it's comedy, I, I, I even laugh more at um, you know, my neighbours the Yamadas rather than this. It's perfectly fine, but I struggle to get particularly excited about it. I when I was when I wrote earlier that I read it that it was I thought it was the funniest. I still think that's true, though. I admit I had forgotten about quite how funny my neighbours the Yamadas were when I was preparing for this episode. But no, I still I've watched it twice now, and, uh, and I haven't watched the dub. I've not um, heard the dub on any Studio Ghibli film apart from Hills Moving Castle and I. Think Ponyo. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've avoided most of them. I I know that I just don't like. As a general, don't like dubs, even when it's an animated film. So it's not the same issues it would be in a live action. I still prefer the original. Yeah. And yes, I watched it the first time I watched it, which was only just last year, perhaps the year before. And I thought it was really, really funny, and I was a bit concerned about going to back to watch it again last week or the week before. And it's like, no, I know. Uh, I even watched it with a. I didn't change the language of the audio, I did change the language of the subtitles this time. I was practicing my Spanish, and nope, not even with Spanish subtitles, I was still finding this film incredibly funny. So I think it must be something inherent to the film because I know I was missing some of the, the un- understanding of some of the subtitles. So, yes, I just find it very funny. Just moments like when Muta just appears in the middle of that bowl of jelly. For some reason, that just <laughs> yeah. cracked me up. It's like, he's dead because he just he swam in the jelly. Yeah. So, he's not really dead. Don't worry, kiddies. But, um, <laughs> I I think it's funny. And that's that's all that matters. It's, not, it's so unlike the rest of their output in terms of narrative, I guess. Because it is. I've seen it compared to, in some ways, to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Mm. Which I can see a little. But on the upside... This film isn't terrible like um, <laughs> Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, the book is, which, which I have it's a lot to say, but I'll keep it for another time for <laughs> when perhaps we do some sort of adaptation of that book. But yeah, it's really fun. And that's that's all you need to know, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if I was comparing it to anything, I would say it's closer to uh, a version of Spirited Away with all the darkness extracted from it. Uh, it's, yeah, that's that's not an unreasonable thing to say. Yeah, it, it certainly it's not really trying to evoke any sort of drama or anything like that. It's just trying to be an entertaining little romp, which yeah. for the most part it succeeds. Uh, it, I don't think it touches any great truths or anything like that, but it's just an entertaining film, and that's fine. Yes, it doesn't really try to have any no. sort of great emotional philosophical depth. It's like this film's just fun. Yes, it answers the question of what would happen if you had to marry a cat. That's, that's all it's trying to do, and yeah, it does that quite well. So we're going to move on to one of. Studio Ghibli's literary adaptations. Scott, do you want to tell us about Tales from Earthsea? Yes, Tales of Earthsea. The, the fantasy realm of Earthsea is in the middle of interesting times in the Chinese proverbial sense. 
uh, thought long vanished, dragons have returned to the skies, crops are failing in the kingdom of Elad, and while Elad's king seems wise and dedicated, he's also a heartbeat away from being assassinated by, it turns out, his own son, Prince Aaron, who takes his father's sword and flees to the country. It seems his tale will come to an end on the wrong end of a pack of quilts combined teeth, but a chance encounter with the archmage Ged, or Sparrowhawk, saves his life, and together they travel to Horttown. Aaron, there, Aaron saves a young girl, Theru, from slavers, but no good deed goes unpunished, and the slaver gang seek revenge and return, capturing Aaron later on. Sparrowhawk again saves the day, but this brings him to the attention of the slaver's master, Lord Cobb, another powerful wizard who has tangled with Ged before, leading them on a collision course that will also drag in Ged's friend Tenar, who also happens to be Theru's guardian. Uh, it seems that Faith has chosen them all to attempt to restore balance to the world, although that's no easy task, and seems to lie in uncovering just what Lord Cobb is up to, uh, along with uncovering the secrets and problems of Theru and Aaron both. Now, I'd read at least one of Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books in the dim and distant past, but I'd be lying if I remembered anything more than the vague concepts from them. Uh, still, there's enough threads nagging uh, away at me while watching Goro Miyazaki's take on the, the world of Earthsea, to do a little digging afterwards, and it turns out that this is a pretty loose amalgamation of, well, all of the books, picking and choosing a bunch of themes and events, and wrapping them up in a neat bow. But a bow that turns out just to look neat, rather than have any capacity to hold things together, and then everything just flops out all over the shop. I presume Goro knew the point of Le Guin's books, as it's mentioned enough times in the dialogue, just not in the actions. It's instructive to look at the conclusion of uh, the book A Wizard of Earthsea, where Ged is followed by a dark presence that's revealed to be his darker natures, and only by facing this and accepting this as part of himself can he find peace. That's adapted into Aaron's B-plot, but rather than accept that this neat Taoist principle could work as a finale, we instead get a rather more straightforward endgame of Use Magic Sword on Evil Wizard. Now, I'm no expert on Taoism, but I don't think that's the central tenet of it. The same feeling runs through all this adaptation, uh, a sense that this doesn't quite understand what its source material is about on anything more than a superficial level, and has tried to cram as much as possible into two hours, rather than take time to explain, in all but the broadest of strokes, why anything that's going on isn't any way important, or who these characters are, or what motivates them, again, in anything but all the most superficial levels. For a studio that's normally so good at world building, it's what makes this stick out like a sore thumb. It's mm. also particularly critical in the case of Aaron, who, remember, we are introduced to as he kills his father, in action that's only barely touched on again, and his whole struggle with darkness arc is really quite poorly elucidated and needed an awful lot more focus if it was going to be anything satisfying. Uh, this is the only Ghibli film that, for what it's worth, <laughs> what very little it's worth, holds a rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes' woefully simplistic rating scale. Uh, now, there are positives to take away from Tales from Mercy, although admittedly it's just the usual Ghibli strong points. It looks and sounds fabulous. Yes. And while it swings and misses on most points, there's an intriguing world behind Mercy that makes the setting interesting almost by default. You know, indeed, for all its faults, I enjoy this way more than The Wind Rises, and certainly more than Ocean Waves. Now, probably third worst of a studio's output is nothing to shout from the <laughs> rooftops about, but this is Studio Ghibli we're talking about. A minor work, but I'd say one that's only just barely good enough to recommend watching at some point, rather than avoiding like the plague. A very guarded and multiply caveated uh, recommendation at best. Has its, has its moments, but not nearly enough of them. Yeah, it looks fabulous. There are some really nice scenes and even simple things like in the in Aaron's father's palace at the beginning, and there's this scene of 
a sunset through a window and it's just this beautiful warm orange and there's some really nice moments like that. And I'm afraid that's kind of where the positives end for me. It's yeah. <laughs> You mentioned world building and you're, you're absolutely right. Even for a film, for instance, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, that is a film crying out for backstory. You want to know how the world got into the state it was in, what the world's like, what happened, why, etc. But you can pick up some from context and then in other ways that that film is constructed, it doesn't matter so much. Mm-hmm. It's right, okay, something terrible, some terrible apocalypse has happened and you get these people trying to survive and you get hints of, of things that have happened and that people have tried in the past, etc. And it works because Nausicaa is a very, very, very good film. In Tales of Mercy, you kind of feel like you're just dumped in this world and you you start off the film largely bewildered about what this world is and why, and by the end of the film, you're no wiser. Yeah. It's, here's this world, uh, who, who is this? Why is this? Are these countries, oh, what are the countries? Uh, who is this person? What are they doing? And you don't really ever get an explanation or even a kind of sense from the surroundings of the dialogue really of the how, who, what, where and why. Yeah. of anything and it's it's rather frustrating because it, it looks like there might be something interesting to see in this in this world it looks like certainly because it looks so nice it's a nice place to be and i just i just find it very very unsatisfying it also i'm not familiar with the books at all scott but the things you're saying to it, it sounds like the that goro miyazaki doesn't really seem to get what the books were about um, and I've seen that suggested elsewhere too and I'm not even sure why they're making it they're sure what they're doing because Lord Cobb for instance the main antagonist I guess only antagonist really apart from the slaver guy it's a very very androgynous figure yeah and it's absolutely nowhere in the film at all um, because they do you, certainly in the English subtitles they use male pronouns and they do call him Lord Cobb but very androgynous figure and from what I've read the, the small amount that I could find for some reason Lord Cobb is using his magic to look and sound like a woman but even that's not consistent um, and I'm not yeah. sure they really know because if that was the case, then surely this person's subordinates wouldn't know who they really were and would call her my lady or something like that. And in terms of like their voice talent, it seems like nobody's gotten any clear direction from the studio in Japan. Because in the Japanese version, Lord Cobb is voiced by a woman. In the United States dub... Lord Cobb is voiced by the very, very masculine-sounding Willem Dafoe. <laughs> in the Latin American version, Lord Cobb is voiced by a woman. In the European Spanish version, voiced by a man. <laughs> so it's like, presumably they're not therefore getting real direction from the studio, so it seems like just it's all a bit of a mess. <laughs> and also, I'm not sure this is a direction issue, but we were talking in our last film about the problem with dubs in this even the Japanese original is some ways bad and I assume it is is direction rather than and because you know that 
when you're listening to something in a foreign language, it's not always easy to tell whether the acting's bad or not. Mm. So that can sometimes actually be a benefit to doing so. But I think it's a, a direction from Goro Miyazaki because there, there is a, there is more affect in the voice later on when Lord Cobb's getting angry or worried. But the actress playing Lord Cobb in this film, her voice is so, is so flat and so without affect that it's actually difficult to watch. I, I genuinely find myself wanted to just kind of fast forward through the scenes when I watched this for the second time last week or the week before, whenever that character was speaking, because it's, it's sort of, if there's such a thing as a deeply oppressive monotone, this is it. <laughs> so everything about this film just seems a bit off. I think I got more out of The Wind Rises than this, so for me this is probably the second worst Studio Ghibli film after Ocean Waves. It's, mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to fit with anything else by Studio Ghibli apart from how it looks. No, uh, I find it a bit less dull than Wind Rises, but it's probably a worse film um, in most regards. It, it's one of these films that's fr- you might forgive it fluffing some of the, the more esoteric details like you know Lord Cobb or something like that. But when it can't do the basics properly, mm. uh, you know, I would forgive it for not explaining the whole, you know, particularly well, the whole concept of how magic works in this. Where you know, if you if you know the true name of something, then you can gain some element of power, exert power over it. And it, I think it does a terrible job of explaining that as well, which probably doesn't help trying to explain what happens to Aaron at the, the, the conclusion of the film, or just before he kind of uh, has another face turn. Um, I, I might forgive it for not explaining that particularly well if it did a good job of building any other characters up or explaining the, the general concept of the world or anything but it doesn't do anything particularly well apart from looking nice yeah. and that's really the problem with it you mentioned the true name thing too and that's a good point that's not an uncommon idea in folklore um, and myth the idea that that names mean something and that a, a thing may have a true name and that gives somebody power over it and they go to great pains in Tales from Earthsea to explain this idea that, that you shouldn't let anybody have your true name and that it's really powerful and then it has absolutely no consequence whatsoever. <laughs> it has no effect on the, what happens in the film in any way. Very little at least. Um, yeah, it, it's yeah, just a, a strange mess of a film in a great many regards. Yeah, it's, it really stands out when compared to everything else in the Jubilee canon. It's like, Clearly of them, but also very much other at the same time. Yeah. I've had qualms about some of their other adaptations, but they've not fluffed it as badly as they've fluffed this one. Quite understand why Ursula K. Le Guin was not particularly uh, enamoured with the, the output of it. Uh, yeah. Not not a good outing from uh, Goro Miyazaki at all. Shall we move on? Yes! The novels of Mary Norton's The Borrowers series have been children's favourites for more than half a century, with their tales of tiny people living in and around the gigantic by comparison humans, struggling to survive in a hostile world full of dangers. Among those captivated by her stories were Miyazaki Hayao and Takahata Isao, who had been considering creating an animated adaptation of her book for 40 years. This they eventually did, with Miyazaki himself adapting the screenplay and doing the production planning, but passing off directorial duties to first-timer Yonebayashi Hiramasa. Ariete, called The Secret World of Ariete in North America, is the story of Ariete, a borrower who lives with her mother, Homily, and father, Pod, in the spaces between the floorboards of an old house in rural Japan. 
As the film begins, Arietti is getting ready to go with her father on her first borrowing, a rite of passage for a young borrower. Things are complicated, though, by the concurrent arrival to the house of an ill young boy, Sho, who has come to this, his mother's childhood home, to rest in preparation for a heart operation, one that he is in fact not expected to survive. During the borrowing expedition, Arietti is seen by Sho, and his understandable curiosity leads to his kind, well-intentioned, but ultimately harmful and damaging attempts to befriend and help Arietti, which results in danger from Haru, the vindictive housekeeper, who sees the borrowers as pests, and the ending of the family's way of life in that place. Unlike other tiny people-focused works, for example Terry Pratchett's Bromeliad trilogy, which not only had the diminutive people borrowing supplies from humans, but had them live in a world where they had created a philosophy and, indeed, a religion based on the human world they lived in, but didn't understand. The main thrust of the borrowers always seemed to me to be are small, and, <laughs> and not a lot else, which isn't the most compelling narrative you'll come across. However, as a concept, it is undeniably something that not only translates well to film, but is indeed improved by it. Showing the human world from a perspective entirely different to our own, or showing things largely invisible to us, allows a filmmaker to be inventive and create an appealing and visually rich world, at once both familiar and alien. Little surprise, I think, that Studio Ghibli's take on the borrowers should be the most visually resplendent and interesting. From the spaces behind walls with footholds and other borrower adaptations made by Pod and those who came before him, to the cavernous human spaces where table legs seem like sheer cliff faces, and the tick-tock of a clock booms like the footfalls of doom, and the jungle-like garden with its enormous flowers and water that acts like a much more viscous substance at borrower scale. It is absolutely gorgeous. It points perhaps Ghibli's best-looking film, which is saying something, and which goes a long way to making up for what is a rather slight story experience. Narratively, it really doesn't go all that far beyond. Look at the small people, aren't they small? But thematically, it's considerably richer, calling back to many of the environmental messages that were contained in Nausicaa, and adding in a healthy dose of warning about the dangers of humans trying to improve things without fully thinking things through, or appreciating things from the perspective of the creatures that they are trying to help. There is also more than a suggestion of both an emotional and a sexual awakening in Ariettean show, not in any explicit way, but in its knowledge and recognition of children as adults in waiting, and bringing a degree of subtlety, understanding and maturity to its adolescent characters that few, if any, Western animations, or films of any type really, manage. Ariete also contains a strong note of loneliness and isolation, and a lament for the ending of a way of life that echoes in much of Studio Ghibli's work, especially that in which Miyazaki has had a hand. For me at least, Arietti is a film that improves with rewatching, as I find it considerably more rewarding now than when I first saw it in cinema release when I, and Scott as I recall, were both more than a little underwhelmed by its small people are small shtick. Even then though, I thought it was beautiful and it's worth watching simply as a vibrant, verdant and lush world in which to get lost for an hour and a half. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Uh, improve the rewatch for me, it's, it, maybe it did a little, I guess. Um, but I think that's probably just more because I knew what to expect from this time around. I knew I was not going to rewatch this again in 
extract any more juice from the narrative of it. But yeah, it is, in terms of eye candy, just stunning. As you say, contender for Studio Ghibli's best-looking film, and I guess you say, definitely saying something. Um, Maybe not quite getting it from... Taylor Princess Kaguya, I don't know. You're splitting hairs at that point. It's such a different style yeah. too, so it's it's harder to yeah. compare those two, I would guess. Yeah, but definitely it's a beautiful looking film. Um, narratively, not much here at all. Small people stealing things is really all you get from it. I think as, as more of a kind of mood piece with those kind of themes you're talking about, I suppose it's a little bit more enjoyable. I did pick up a bit more on that this time around as well. Uh, I still wouldn't say I enjoyed it uh, any more than last time, which is to say that it's still a very good film all things considered but uh of the peers that it has in with its stable mates um i don't think it quite reaches the same heights it's perfectly fine though uh, i would still heartily recommend it um on a visual level if nothing else mm-hmm. but that that is i think diminishing it a little bit it's it's got a perfectly serviceable story as well it's certainly got enough going for it to be worth watch anyone's uh, worthy of anyone's time and I would heartily recommend that you do so. But uh, it's not in the top half of Ghibli films for me. But uh, yeah, that's more comment on the quality of the rest <laughs> of the Ghibli films rather than anything to the detriment of this. I have watched this, I think, perhaps four times now. Mm. Certainly at least three, I think four. Right. And and again, after that first watch of realising that it's not particularly strong story-wise, I think that's like you're saying for yourself, Scott, that that's perhaps why I enjoy it more after that first time. So I'm not expecting yeah. anything great story-wise. But I don't know, I just, I think each time I'm more aware of the this approach to those themes that I mentioned. And yeah. there's a lot of subtlety in it too. Yeah, yeah, like I can see that. The way that, even something simple, it's kind of a, it's a visual metaphor, but like flowers blooming and, or seeming to bloom, that sort of thing, with feelings and things awakening in the characters. And I mean, this is as much as, as well as the things I already mentioned, it's as much about friendship as well. Yeah. And it's so it's much, much stronger tonally than it is narratively. But yeah, it's just so damn pretty. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> absolutely lush. I mean, just particularly the the scenes in the garden are just mm-hmm. so green and rich. And then those, like the red poppies and things, it's. It's just so nice to look at, and you could. It's one of those films. I think you could just turn off the sound and watch because mm. of how nice it looks. <laughs> Talking of poppies, as I just did. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I find my ten years linking device that I like to work and teach episode. <laughs> From up on Poppy Hill, Scott. If we are finished with Ariete, yes. Yokohama, nineteen sixty-three. Japan continues rebuilding after World War Two in the middle of their economic miracle. Sixteen-year-old uh, Umi. Matsuzaki uh, splits her attention between school and running the boarding house that she lives in, caring also for her younger sisters and grandmother, while her mother is studying in the USA. As part of this, she raises nautical flags to wish the ships in the harbour below the hilltop house a safe voyage. Meanwhile, at, sh- at school, Shun Kazama, student at newspaper Big Wheel, is trying to organise a campaign to save their clubhouse, the Quartier Latin, from demolition. While Umi is initially repelled by Shun's brash attention-grabbing methods, she soon volunteers to help with the newspaper and the campaign to clean up and save the clubhouse. This leads to them growing closer, however wrinkles in the plan appear when it seems the two of them may be related. The investigation, albeit a rather passive investigation, about their heritage forms a major part of the closing reels and where a great amount of the emotion of this film resides. Now, 
narratively, that's pretty much a lot in From Up on Poppy Hill, which might seem troublesome for a 90-minute film. Truly, it's not a hotbed of twisting, turning drama, but surprisingly, perhaps, it's no less enjoyable for its gentle nature. Uh, Yumi and Shun are, in true Ghibli style, hugely likeable lead characters, and engender more than enough sympathy to want to see them succeed and be happy. And that, it turns out, is more than enough to carry the film, and I'm pleased to see that I enjoyed this just as much, perhaps more, this time around. I don't think I made a particularly great case for this year, but but the combination of looking and sounding as good as any, well, almost any other Ghibli film, uh, Mm. impressive given the less fantastical nature of this uh, outing, and lovable characters makes this an easy, enjoyable and rewarding watch. In a cinematic landscape where the earth is imperiled on a daily basis, the lower stakes here seems all the more believable, and the relationship that this film centres on is just nice, I guess. Uh, As I say, I don't think I've been the best proponent for it, but out of the films we're talking about today, this may be the one that I enjoy the most, and a sign that there's a chance Koro can, if not entirely step out from his father's shadow, at least shine a strong light from out of it. Recommended out of ten. Yes, it is one of those more slice-of-life films Mm. that Ghibli have done a number of times that would go in the same bracket as like an Only Yesterday or something, Um, one that I actually like considerably more. I remember being not massively enamoured of it when we we covered it back in our one-liner days Mm -hmm. and remember the big issue I had was I thought the narrative was basically absent. Um, I didn't feel that quite so strongly um, when I watched it this time. Like, and this is my third viewing, I think. And each time, like Ariete, each time I've enjoyed it more. And it's for the tonal content. Although this time I do think that the, the narrative was a bit stronger than I remember it being. Right. But the yes, the tonal content is just so appealing because it, it it feels natural. It's slice of life. It just yes, these are believable real characters yeah. doing believable real things, and there's a certain there's silly. There's sadness in it. When you begin to, the only real beef I have with this film is that I almost wish the story of the two characters hadn't been resolved in the way it had. Because while for something probably aimed at children, it's going to be a heck of a difficult thing to do. I think that would have been a much more interesting narrative for them to have to come to terms with what they thought was happening in the between the yeah, two characters yeah. that said though at least even before that gets resolved it's it's heartbreaking yeah um and you really feel for these characters it's the magic of studio ghibli is they make you feel such strong emotion about what's basically some daubs of paint really you know it's it's true <laughs> art and it is just a it's got it's got a lot of heart this film and it has a fair bit of humor too there's something some of the people in the clubhouse, particularly the yeah. the philosophy guy, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's something Studio Ghibli are able to do a lot. They're such expressive faces. The faces are relatively simple, but they get such incredible expression out of them. And yeah. his um, his face going from rage to seriousness to bewilderment to shock is a joy to watch. Um, yeah, this is a film that's definitely has climbed up the rankings for me. Uh, it's not my favourite that we're covering in this episode by any means, but it is, it's a really rewarding film. Again, and it's, you mentioned the word Scott, it's the word I mentioned earlier on to just like, it's nice. Mm. <laughs> you know, there are people in it who have issues with the fact that, that Umi's dad had died and 
other people have lost parents in the the Korean War that this is set just after, just in the run up to the Tokyo Olympics. Which again, that's an interesting time period to see in Japan as well. What's actually the economic miracle and trying to rebuild themselves and trying to put war behind them and then focus on things like the Olympics in the 1960s instead. It's an interesting time period, but it's just, it's more just, these are nice people um, and they've got some bad things have happened in their backstory, but nobody's bad in it. There's no, there's no villain. Yeah. And it doesn't need a villain. And you mentioned to him in this um, day and age of the world being destroyed all of the time. <laughs> Low stakes is nice and the lack of villains is nice given that when the world's being destroyed, the villain's generally terrible. Yeah. I've no, honestly no idea what I'm saying now. I've kind of <laughs> lost my point somewhere in there other than this is very nice. It looks beautiful and it's just a nice way to spend your time. Recommended, definitely. Very good, very good. Last film we'll speak about today for from this spot at least, would be when Marnie was there. I associate three things with Norfolk. Adam Buxton, Alan Partridge and Coleman's Mustard, and certainly not Studio Ghibli, or ghost stories. So it's perhaps just as well that writers Ando Masashi, Niwa Keiko and Yonabayashi Hiramasa transpose the action of John G. Robinson's children's book when Marnie was there from East Anglia to Hokkaido. First though, we visit Sapporo, where we are introduced to Anna, a lonely, isolated 12-year-old who feels apart from the world and who has no friends to speak of. Introverted and depressive, Anna considers herself a burden to her foster parents, who she thinks only look after her because they are paid to do so by the government. Informing much of her life is a tragedy, the loss of her parents and then her grandmother while she was still an infant, leaving her feeling alone and abandoned. When she suffers a severe asthma attack, it is suggested by her physician that moving out of the city to somewhere with cleaner air would be good for her condition. So she is sent to spend the summer with Setsu and Kiyomasa, relatives of her foster mother Yuriko. Taciturn, reserved and, frankly, miserable at first, Anna begins to open up after she discovers an old house on the other side of the salt marsh and meets the mysterious, blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl that lives there, Marnie. It's not only Marnie's foreign features that are strange, it's her dress and that of her parents, as well as the fact that she won't, or can't, go far from the house, and the fact that when she's not near the house herself, Anna seems to forget that Marnie even exists. It's almost like Marnie is a ghost. Spoiler, Marnie is a ghost. Ghost or not, the girls begin to spend a lot of time together, doing all of the things preteen girls are wont to do. Talking, laughing, parties, midnight robot expeditions, drinking wine, attacking elderly women and locking them in bedrooms. <laughs> Never. Usual. This last is perfectly okay though, as the old woman in question is a right rotter. <laughs> At first thinking that she has conjured Marnie from her imagination, Anna begins to discover clues that point to Marnie being, or having been, a real person. Not that Marnie's lack of substance prevents her and Anna becoming great friends. This isn't the spooky kind of ghost story. And as she discovers more about Marnie, Anna begins to discover more about herself and to realise that she is in many ways fortunate and, most importantly, loved. When Marnie was there, it's a slow burn and will doubtless test the patience of younger viewers, but it's very much worth sticking with as it is deeply rewarding in the end. The initial hump to get over, 
and one I didn't actually remember from when I first saw this a couple of years ago when it was one of my films of the year is that Anna is kind of a brat to begin with and she's pretty hard to warm to. No doubt this is intentional with the character pushing the audience away just as she does her peers in the world in general. Like Anna, the film refuses to be forced but in its own time both it and Anna open up and flourish and it ends, for me at least, in floods of tears. But tears that are like rain can be. Wet and miserable in the moment, yes, but afterwards things feel refreshed and renewed. Like Yonabayashi's previous studio Ghibli film, Ariete, when Marnie was there is rich, lush and beautiful. Though this is hardly unusual for the company, of course. And if this does turn out to be Studio Ghibli's final film, as it was expected to be at the time, and with Miyazaki's How Do You Live, still not a certain thing it could well be so, then it's a fitting title in which to go out. Certainly much more so than Miyazaki's own, rather disappointing. Possibly, maybe, I was sure, Make Up Your Mind Man, final film, The Wind Rises. <laughs> Less fantastical than A Spirited Away, but much more mature, and with characters displaying much more vulnerability. When Marnie was there, may not be the absolute best of Studio Ghibli, but it is beautiful, unhurried, subtle, atmospheric, contemplative, personal and touching. A must-see for fans of the studio. Uh, yes, this was the first time I'd seen it and I was quite impressed with it. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough watch in the first what half an hour or so. Um, you know, the, the character is just a little bit too good at showing how damaged and yeah. antisocial she is to, to, to really carry the film. It's just quite spiky um, yeah. earlier on. It's hard to get a, a handle on her emotionally or um, intellectually. Yeah, so I was getting a bit worried at that point, but no, as you say, it does, uh, does bring it all back. On first viewing, I would say that I enjoyed this quite a lot. Um, I think I'd probably need to go back and watch it again in a few months to see if it's if it would rise to the top or stay where it is, which is, you know, top third, I guess, <laughs> off the top mm-hmm. of my head. Um, and it, it could well do so because it's a, it's a really nice tale. Quite mature in what it's trying to do. Not one for younger children at all who I suspect will be too bored of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it, it burns too slowly for it. be too yeah. restless, I think. Yeah, it burns slowly to the point where you, at some points you're not even sure it's on fire anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Never turn uh, to lit fireworks, though, Scott. Important safety <laughs> advice. Yes. <laughs> but yes, it's, it's probably one that's more for the older audiences, mm-hmm. perhaps even with only the parents. And I think for those people, it, it does really deliver quite a lot. Uh, Yeah, really nice film, and I highly recommend it. Indeed. Okay, Scott, now that we have come to the end of our Studio Ghibli coverage, I think there is perhaps some merit in us giving uh, our listeners an idea of... Well, I thought best to split it into two categories. One was what you would consider the three, or more if you think necessary, the three essential Ghibli films, the films that, for people new to Studio Ghibli, that these are the ones that they should watch, perhaps to give them the best idea of the flavour of the studio or the philosophy or style or whatever it may be. Yeah. And also, simply your three... Well, originally I think I believe... I think I believe... Crikey, I can't speak tonight. Uh, I think originally I said to you, best of, I think, and I hope we understood it, I probably mean favourites. More than anything, I guess. Um, so, to that end, let's begin. What would 
be your three essential Studio Ghibli films. Join us now for the essential three Ghibli films. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine, in terms of getting a flavour for the studio, I've, I thought... I thought let's pick one for Miyazaki, one from Takahata, and one from uh, the folks we've spoken about today, uh, which is a tough call, really, for all these categories. Um, I'd perhaps go with Spirited Away, uh, Tale of Princess Kaguya, and When Marnie Was There, uh, the first two, because they're arguably those, <laughs> the best from those those directors, and When Marnie Was There, I think, perhaps best bridges the fantastical and grounded poles that Miyazaki and Takahata generally operate from, so that's... That would be my three for getting a flavour for what the uh, studio can put out on a pretty regular basis from the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I obviously took a, a slightly different tact here then, uh, although at least one of those films is the same for me. For me, I thought I didn't separate them by directing the way that you did. I, in fact, have for Essential Ghibli, I have two Miyazaki films. The first thing I've put on my list is My Neighbour Totoro because... It's one of those films that is narratively slight, mm-hmm. but I always found My Neighbour Totoro was just such a magical film, and I think that's why it's of value for anybody unfamiliar with their work, because it's just, yeah. it's simple, joyful, magical, delightful. There is not a negative thing in that film, apart from the bit where the father abandons his children by going to the office um, hours away but um, that's not really addressed in the film I think I, I probably have one of the few people to actually focus on that but it's just because it's just such a simple magical thing so I'd say My Neighbour Totoro for that the other Miyazaki film I've picked is Spirited Away probably because I mean Totoro's probably more famous Spirited Away is their most lauded film and I think anybody unfamiliar with Studio Ghibli is like, well, what is the big deal? It's like, well, watch this and you'll find out. Yeah. Because it is it's so fantastical, it's so visually rich, has a strong narrative, interesting characters. It explores some of Ghibli's interest in magic, fantasy, folklore, that sort of thing. Um, Japanese mythology. It's all in there. And... I did pick a Takahata film, but I went for a Grave of the Fireflies as an essential rather than a Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Close run thing. It was more, I thought, if you are just not so familiar with Studio Ghibli, that film really shows how adult and thoughtful they can be. I think it's very easy for a lot of people to dismiss animation as a children's thing, and Grave of the Fireflies is most assuredly not that. It It is about death and it's about war and social isolation and rather heavy themes and but it's still in this beautiful animated style Taka had this more realistic take on animation yes it's just it's a very rewarding film and it's it's deeper more adult than most of the other stuff that gives you a good flavor as well Mm. okay so that's our studio ghibli essentials then would be spirited away my Neighbour Totoro, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, Grave of the Fireflies, and When Marnie Was There. And obviously we'd encourage you to watch all of their output, certainly pretty close to all of it, but if you're just looking for a starter kit, you couldn't really go far wrong with those five films. Yeah, absolutely. So then, just uh, your favourite, Scott. 
uh, what is this, Sophie's Choice? Um, it, it's a difficult one, isn't it? <laughs> I have, my top two I've picked, these, oh, they're not in order, but my first two I've picked these, and then the the third one, it's like, do I go for nostalgia, or do I, oh, no, can I pick all of them, please? <laughs> <laughs> for me, Grave of the Fireflies, Tale of Princess Kaguya, and Spirited Away. Although Ghibli has such a crowded god tier that any <laughs> yes. other day you t- ask could have... I could have picked Castle in the Sky, My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, Only Yesterday, Whisper of the Heart, and even from Up in Poppy Hill. So there's a lot of choice in terms of really good Studio Ghibli films, and you can't really go wrong with any of those those lot. Yeah, two of those are two that I've picked also. I think um, Miyazaki Hayao is, is the star name associated with Studio Ghibli, and rightly so. But I think, um, particularly in going back to watch all of these films in our in preparation for our podcasts, I've come to appreciate Takahata's work more. Yeah. Yeah. And which is why The Tale of the Princess Kaguya and Give of the Fireflies are two of my three favourites. They're just they're just so rich. Um mm. and I think the fact they are they're a bit more adult in many ways is perhaps part of it. But they are just such fantastic films. Again, the problem is, as you say, like the the top tier Studio Ghibli is just absolutely crammed to the gills with stuff, so it's yeah. it's hard to to pick one. And killing your darlings is horrible. Um, <laughs> if I know what I've picked, and and I, I changed this about half a dozen times, I think. And my neighbor Totoro was in there for a long time, and that was my favorite Studio Ghibli film. Never thought it was their best, but because it just it was a film that I could watch any time, would never fail to put a smile on my face. Mm-hmm. I have in fact gone for Kiki's Delivery Service mm-hmm. because it's the first Studio Ghibli film I saw and there's something special, it's an excellent film anyway yeah. but, um, because it's the first it has a special place in my heart and Gigi is fantastic I love that cat mm. but yes, again clearly though you couldn't go wrong with any of these things we've suggested because they're all awesome <laughs> we do have some thoughts from some other people on what is awesome and what is not though do you happen to have our Twitter comments at hand, Scott? Uh, yes, uh, the two that agree with you are uh, at Perpetual Dumb Machine and at Hey Ali Oops, who are both from the I'm the Host podcast, and both agree that uh, Kiki is definitely their is definitely their favourite. Uh, just something sweet and perfect about that coming of age story, and they love it. And yes, I think both Blake and Ali decide or mentioning they really need to watch all of them and. I heartily second that motion. Uh, there's there's not really a, a, perhaps one exception or one or two exceptions, there's not really a film in Studio Ghibli's canon that's not worth your time and you won't get some enjoyment out of and a lot of them you will get a great amount of enjoyment from it. So yeah, certainly worth catching up with all of them. And we also have something tweet in from at Sonic Yoda. His favourite is definitely Howl's Moving Castle. Definitely prefer a big heap of fantasy with my oceans. And Stu from the Films and Swearing podcast, that, that's at FAS podcast. Uh, the Cat Returns has a special place in his life. He adored the story, the score, and even the English dub. Peter, Peter Boyle as Muto was endlessly entertaining, and the film had plenty of proper laugh-out-loud moments. So yes, uh, probably more in line with you than me on that one. But uh, yes, as I say, it's, it's still a film that's definitely worth watching. I think that's for a lot. Okay. We are a film podcast, of course, so we've stuck to that realm. But before we leave you, there are a handful of Studio Ghibli, or Ghibli adjacent works, that are worth giving passing mention to. Quite aside from the surprisingly large amount of contract work that the studio has done for other production companies. 
and I guess as well as keeping the company financially viable, I suppose the animators and other production staff needed something to do while Miyazaki decided whether or not he was retiring for the umpteenth time. <laughs> Firstly, I'll mention two of Takahata's pre-Ghibli TV series, Heidi, Girl of the Owls, based on Joanna Speary's famous novel, and particularly his adaptation of L.M. Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables, both of which Miyazaki also worked on. Keeping with the small screen, the recent Goro Miyazaki-directed Ronja the Robber's Daughter, it's on Amazon Video for those of you in the UK and US, is probably worth a look, but being honest, may not be all that great as I lost interest after the about the third episode due to notable lack of anything happening, <laughs> though I'm sure I will return at some point to finish it. A video game next, Nino Kuni, the tale of a young boy travelling to a magical world to rescue his mother. Frustrating in that the game never stops holding your hand for 70 hours, but an absolute joy to look at. The cutscenes were animated by Studio Ghibli, and the game designers and animators worked with Ghibli and immersed themselves in the studio's works to make the world and story look and feel like a Studio Ghibli film. It's lovely stuff. It's available on the Nintendo DS and the PS3, so I think may also be available on PlayStation now if you only have a PlayStation 4 though the PlayStation version is the preferred one for the greater graphical fidelity. It's a great way to really soak yourself in a Studio Ghibli world. If you do check it out, as I recommend you do, just make sure to play it with the English dub as Mr Drippy is one of the greatest and most Welshest animated characters of all time. (laughs) Tidymon. The last two items in this ludicrously long-winded What's the opposite of introduction? I can't think of a word and I've decided that extraduction is a good word that doesn't exist. But Outro-duction. Outro-duction, <laughs> yes. Outro. yes. The, the last two items then is ludicrously long-winded um, outro-duction. Check out Giant God Warrior appears in Tokyo. There's a link to it in our, uh, on Vimeo on our Twitter feed. Not just because it's called Giant God Warrior appears in Tokyo, but to be honest, that's enough for me. But because it's Studio Ghibli's first live-action short, and is a prequel-ish to Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, partly demonstrating how the world came to be the wasteland that it is in that film. And finally, yet another exhortation for me to check out Mikhail Dudok de Witt's beautiful The Red Turtle if you haven't done so already. Co-produced by Studio Ghibli's Suzuki Toshio and Takahata Isao, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film. Yes, I think we mentioned it in our Takata podcast, but there's also the uh, their documentary about the canals, which uh, is, of course, yes. At least mentioned the story of Yaganawa's canals. I can't remember exactly. Yanagawa, the studio of Yanagawa's canals. Yeah. Um, yes, a, a, a live action documentary that almost looks like a Studio Ghibli film. Yes. An animated if you like film. Canals and Studio Ghibli, then you'll <laughs> love that. Yes, that wraps us up for today, then. Yes. We will be back on. The 10th with animations that are not Studio Ghibli is all we will say for now. <laughs> but yes, in the meantime, we were just, the reason we started this podcast really was to share a passion about particular films or an interest in finding out more about them. And I think of all of the stuff we've covered so far, it's the Studio Ghibli stuff that I would be most evangelical about, I guess, that I would most want people to check out if they haven't done so already. Yeah, probably the same for me, at least until we do the Uwe Ball episode. Check out Studio Ghibli work if you haven't done already, because it is magnificent. Uh, so, yes, finally, that's at the end. Four episodes on Studio Ghibli. 
I, we probably could have done twice that um, without too much trouble, but I hope we found something interesting to hear and then you will check out some of the work. If there's anything you'd want to talk to us about, either Studio Ghibli or anything else that we've uh, talked about in the last however many episodes we've done, 96 or something, you know, please do. Um, we're approachable. Um, mainly on your Twitter is probably the best place. We're there at Fuds on Film. Uh, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Fuds on Film. And you can email us at podcast at Fuds on Film.com. And we don't normally beg for reviews or anything like that, but, you know, if you want to, leave a review on iTunes or your uh, podcast player on the Apple platforms, then or anywhere else podcasts are reviewed we'd heartily appreciate that so yes until next time we'll catch you around ta-da